Good morning, church. It is a uh, privilege to get to share with you um, again this morning as we continue through our Revelation series. Uh, my wife, my family, and I, we're still we're doing pretty well. Uh, COVID is definitely real, and uh, we have, have dealt with some symptoms the past week, but uh, we definitely believe we're on the mend, and uh, I fully anticipate this being my last Sunday in quarantine. One of the primary questions folks have asked during this quarantine time has been, do you know how you got COVID? And um, I've thought about that question a lot and I will just, man, I, I can't come up with anything. I have no idea how I got COVID, um, but I do feel very confident as to how my wife got COVID. Um, last Thursday, I, uh, it would have been, yeah, about 10 days ago, um, I came home and uh, shared with my wife that I had just been to urgent care and I had tested positive for COVID. And uh, I let her know that in order to protect her and the kids, I'd spend the evening on Airbnb and um, I'd be looking for, you know, just a little cabin out in the woods uh, where I would, you know, collect some of my favorite books and, and get some of my favorite snacks. And I would spend 14 days um, in solitude, uh, leaving her at home with uh, just her and the kids in, in order that I might sacrifice and, and protect them. My friend, I tell you, when I told my wife this, she gave me the biggest kiss right on the mouth you have ever witnessed. And then she pulled away and said, I don't think so, sucker. So I feel very confident that that's how my wife got COVID, but I still do not know how I got it. In all seriousness, uh, your your prayers and encouragement continue have been um, just a just a great support, and I'm incredibly thankful. This morning, we're going to dive right into uh, the scripture that was just read to you, for you from Revelation three, talking about Revelation three, fourteen through twenty two, as Christ addresses the church at Laodicea. Laodicea. We can learn uh, a great deal about what Jesus is instructing the ch to the church by learning about this city. Laodicea was located in the Lycus Valley, along with the cities of Hierapolis and Colossae. It was approximately 300 miles east of Athens and 600 miles north of Jerusalem. Two important imperial trade routes converged here. The city was a very wealthy commercial city because of this. It was known for banking and the manufacturing of clothing, especially black wool. It was had a famous medical school with ointments for the ear and for the eyes. And so wealthy was the city that following a devastating earthquake in AD 60, Laodicea rebuilt itself without any assistance from Rome. The Roman historian Tacitus said of her, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. The city and the church were a lot alike. They saw themselves as fully self-sufficient. They didn't need the help of anyone, including God. They were just fine by themselves. But we learn from Jesus' address to the church that the church was very mistaken in this assessment of itself. As we look at this letter, we start off in verse 14, and we need to be reminded of who it is that is speaking to the church. Verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, 
the beginning of God's creation. How does Jesus uh, reveal himself here? He lets us know that he is the one whom you can trust, whom you can trust what he says, and he is the one who will finish what he starts. He refers to himself as the amen. This this term, we can learn a little more about this by going to the letter written to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 1.20. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, the amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. As the amen, he is the faithful and true witness. The one in whom we can trust fully what he says. Laodicea is unreliable, Jesus will reveal. But he is fully reliable. Laodicea is unfaithful. But Jesus is eternally faithful. The amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. He is not only the one whom we can trust what he says, but again, the one whom we can trust will do what he says he will do. He says, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. He was the beginning. Jesus was the originator of creation. The Father, Son, and Spirit there in the beginning. He was therefore not only the creator of his church, but also of his creation, thus giving him full authority to speak boldly and clearly to the church at Laodicea and to us here today. In AD 325, it was the heresy of Arius, and today it's the heresy of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness. And this heresy is that this idea that Jesus didn't, wasn't always, that he didn't always exist, that unlike God the Father, Jesus was a created being like us, not there in the beginning. Being not that far from uh, Arius, who taught this heresy in AD 325, Laodicea had surely been exposed to this false teaching, but Jesus makes clear the beginning of God's creation, that he was there, the originator in the beginning. And he goes on to assure that which he had created, that he will save and bring it to its completion. The hope that the church in Laodicea had is rooted in the truth that Jesus is not only the head of the church, but he's the Lord of creation. And thus all that he says can be trusted and clung to. His plan will go forward despite the flaws that he is about to reveal. And in 15, verses 15 through 17, he does just that. His work, his words are difficult to hear, weighty. I know your works. You are neither hot, cold, nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
this uh, this passage is um, commonly misunderstood. When we read this without understanding the context of Laodicea, it's easy to think that the Lord is telling them, "I'd rather, I'd just rather you be hot, be apathetic to me, uh, or you know, hot, be be." Um, you know, just sold out or cold being apathetic. The, the idea that we commonly think is that hot and cold, you know, means I'd, I'd rather you just be all in or all out. But Jesus never wants us to be all out. There's no way in that, um, by that understanding that Jesus would say, I'd prefer that you just be cold. Well, that's an easy uh, interpretation based on a quick reading. That's actually not what's being said. One thing that uh, we learn about the the city of Laodicea is that uh, despite its prosperity, the city did not have one, it didn't have a primary local watering source that it produced on its own. This was the major weakness of the city. There was an absence of just an adequate or convenient source of good drinking water. Because of this, by means of aqueducts, The city of Laodicea got water from the two cities there in the valley alongside of it. There was this, um, uh, let's see, from Hierapolis, there was this hot medicinal water that, that flowed into the city via aqueducts. And it was this kind of hot spring water that was intended and, and used commonly in that city for medical purposes. And this hot water that would flow from these hot springs into Laodicea, uh, it would cool and ultimately it would cool to kind of this lukewarm temperature. And that's in part because the other source of water came from Colossae. And from Colossae, there was this cold, pure spring water. And these two water sources coming together, they kind of created this just putrid, gross, very lukewarm water that people who would visit uh, Laodicea who weren't prepared for the this water that wasn't very good were known to spit it out of their mouths and, and throw up. And, and history tells us, you know, uh, this is a well-known throughout the city. Like the weird smells we can't explain in Joplin, Laodicea had terrible water. And so when Jesus says, I know your works, you're not hot nor cold. He's saying something very different. He's saying you are neither providing healing for those who are spiritually sick, nor are you providing refreshment for those who are spiritually thirsty. You're not doing either. Those two water sources met these two needs if they were by themselves. This, that hot water that, uh, that flew, that, 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 flew in, that flowed into the city, by itself, it was beneficial for healing. And there were healing powers associated with these hot springs. And the pure water that came from Colossae, in and of itself, it was cool and refreshing. But together... Laodicea was neither. They were neither of those things. They had no idea. They had lost sight of who they were and what they were called to. He tells the church, you're distasteful. I I don't 
want anything to do with you. You're not growing deeper. You're not, you're not helping those who are spiritually sick to be nourished in the gospel and to be, you're not helping those who are spiritually sick to have a deeper love for and understanding of God's word. And at the same time, you're not reaching wider. You're not providing the refreshment of the gospel to those who are spiritually thirsty. You're not doing anything. You're just content with where you are and, and what you've done and you've lost sight of all that I've called you to. As Christians, we have to own and be aware of our spiritual condition because Jesus knows us and he knows what it is they need and ultimately what we need. And in verses 18 and 19, he tells them of such. He says in verse 18 and 19, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you might be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to appoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Jesus says there are some things you need and you need to get them from me. You need gold refined by fire. Jesus tells them, you need to regain. He's telling this church that was probably composed of this culmination of both those who were lost and those who weren't, but the, the ultimately what they need is the same. They need the gold refined by fire, that being faith, trust, dependence on him. They need to return to that which they have been given to steward, to trust completely in Jesus above all else. Turn away from all of your, your self-righteousness, all of your, you know, all the, all the ways in which you believe you're self-sustaining and recognize your dependence on me that value comes in Christ and Christ alone. And you need white clothes that come from me. Again, white clothes signify this spotless righteousness. For those in the church who are not, don't belong to him. Jesus is saying you need righteousness that comes from me. That Jesus replaces our, 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 our wretchedness. He, he sees us as we are. He knows who we are. He knows the reality of the depths of our soul. And he takes the sin which scars us. And he exchanges that for his own perfect righteousness. That Jesus fulfilled the law in a way we never could. And he did it perfectly. And he gives that inheritance to us that our clothes might be white and spotless. And then in number three, he says, and you need eyes to see. Again, when we, uh, when we consider the city of Laodicea, I told you they, they had this renowned medical school and they were known uh, specifically for medicine that helped the ears and the eyes. They were famous for this eye solution called Phyregian powder. But ironically, the Laodiceans are blind themselves to their own spiritual condition. While they were very aware of how to help those regain sight spiritually, they had lost their own sight. And the great physician had a cure for their sight. The blindness of their self-deception could only be healed by the, the ointment provided by Jesus himself. 
And this healing comes from looking to him in the gospel and to clinging to his word as our instruction in all things. So that we might have eyes to see that which is true. That we might have eyes to see that which is true about ourselves and we may no longer be spiritually blinded. All of this, this harsh rebuke, he reminds them is birthed from a sincere love for his people. He says in verse 19 again, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He loves them. Discipline is for those whom Jesus loves. The truth of his word, what's spoken here is, is harsh, but it's meant to keep them from a darker reality. Jesus is going to go on to promise them where they will go and the hope that they will have if they will repent and turn to him. Because the, op- the, the alternative to that, the alternative to not receiving the discipline of the father and repenting is that he's going to spit them out of their mouth and that they're not going to be in his presence. For those whom he loves, he disciplines. Through his word, he gives us truth that we might apply it to our lives, change course, and let go of lesser things. And the psalmist pleads with the the Lord, turn my eyes from useless things and teach me the value of your ways. To close this morning, I am going to do something a little different. This is a different setting, so I'm going to do something I wouldn't usually do on a Sunday morning. I'm going to read you uh, just a short story. Last, a couple weeks ago at the Acts 29 annual conference, Ray Ortland uh, recalled this story, and I hadn't heard it in some time, and uh, I was delighted to hear it again. And in reading our text this week, I couldn't help but feel it applied to what we're talking about here with the church in Laodicea. C.S. Lewis, he wrote one of his most famous stories is a story called The Great Divorce. And real quick, basically the idea of The Great Divorce is there are these ghosts that live in what is called the Gray City. And the Gray City is hell, even though they don't really all realize that it's hell. And one day these, these ghosts get on a bus at a bus stop in hell and they take a trip to the outskirts of heaven. And they're not quite in heaven, but they're in this valley that they overlook a mountain range. And on the other side of the mountains is heaven. And the ghosts, these transparent, not really people, get out of the bus and they have the opportunity to go forward, to stay, to not return to the gray city. But they have to give something up in order to do that. And so the narrator witnesses as the ghosts at the the idea of giving up that the thing they love, they, they all get on the bus to go back. But there's this one ghost that has uh, this reluctant exchange. And he, the narrator tells the story of this ghost. And I want to share it with you as we close today. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder, though, was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip, 
and whispering things in his ear. As he caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you. He said, it wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Ah, so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light. Like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for all your hospitality, but it's no good, you see. I told this, this little chap, here he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here, I realize that, but he won't stop, so I'll just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet, said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Oh, uh, look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Do you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's just, it's very embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later. There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it's going to be all right now, so thank you very much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the, the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I think over, I'll think over what you said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It'd be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for the operation. Some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back. You're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You would kill me if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that, really, it isn't, I say. Let me turn back, let me run back to tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor, and I'll, I'll come again at the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You are jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the darn thing without asking me before I knew it would be all over by now if you had? I will not kill it against your will. 
Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. And then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, yes, I, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Blast you. Go on, can't you get it over? Do what you like, bellowed the ghost. But he ended, whimpering. God to help me. God to help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I had never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile. He twisted it while it bit and writhed, and then he flung it, broken-backed, onto the turf. Oh, that's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. Then I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment more solid, the upper arm and shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man. Naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail, still flickering, became a tail of hair that flickered between the huge and glossy buttocks. And suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was a great stallion. I have the greatest stallion I have ever seen. Silvery white, but with mane and tail of gold. It was smooth and shining, rippling with swells of flesh and muscle, whinnying and stamping with its hooves. At each stamp, the land shook and the trees dindled. The new man turned and clapped the new horse's neck. It nosed its bright body. Horse and master breathed into each other's nostrils. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced them. When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it might have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country, which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it, 
In joyous haste, the young man leaped upon the horse's back, and turning in his seat, he waved a farewell and then nudged the stallion with his heels, and they were off before I knew what was happening. There was riding if you like. I came out as quickly as I could among the bushes to follow them with my eyes, but already they were only like a shooting star far off on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains. And then still like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what had seemed impossible steeps and quicker every moment, till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I might strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves, into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. And just a little ways down, the teacher of the narrator explains to him what had happened. He says, do you understand all of this, son? Said the teacher. I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking that the lizard turned into a horse? Hey, but it was killed first. And you mustn't forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir. But does it mean that everything, everything that is in us can go to the mountains? Nothing, not even the best and noblest, can go as it is right now. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial, will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whisper, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. For the ghost in the story, this lizard represented uh, lust and, and, and lust for things of the earth. And Jesus promises something much greater. Just as the angel assures the ghost that it will be painful, but it will be worth it. So Jesus assures the church in Laodicea that while uh, they, they are clinging to, to earthly things that will surely cost them and be painful to let go of, the reward is a future over the mountains. Which we pray to that end this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness, your graciousness to us. Lord, would you be so gracious as to put to death that which sits on our shoulders and lies to us? God, would we not be those who are, um, who are described as the Laodiceans? Would we not be lukewarm? But God, would we be bursting with refreshing truth of the gospel? Lord, would you make this so? Don't allow us to be content with the affairs of this world. Lord, you have um, surely 
given us a desire for a greater place. And, and Lord, we're all to our, our unsatisfaction with this world leads us to, to buy into and to cling and to seek things in the here and now, to listen to the lies that tell us that what we desire is here. But you assure us, Lord, if we would let go of, if we would let you kill that in us, our eyes would be open to what we truly desire, which is the promise of an eternity on the other side of the hills with you. Lord, keep us faithful that we might rest in that place one day, worshiping you for all eternity. I ask these things in your good name. Amen. This morning at this time, I invite you, uh, if you are in Jesus, if your hope is, is in him, to come to the table, to break the, the, to take the bread and, and take the juice and remember Jesus. Remember the one who rescued you. Remember the great amen, the true and faithful witness, the one in whom your hope lies, the one who offers you gold refined by fire, white clothes, and eyes to see. Come to the table that just the, 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 the effects of this week, the ways we've been blinded and deceived, the way the, the lizard on our own shoulder has, has deceived us and, and caused us to believe things that aren't true, would we come to the table, remember Jesus, that his loving grace might be rubbed over our eyes and we might be able to see clearly the one who reigns in glory. If you're in Jesus this morning, I invite you to come, partake, and remember him. If you're not in Jesus this morning, if he is not the Lord of your life, don't take communion. Communion's not for you, but Jesus is for you. And I assure you that any person in this room, any member of this church would be delighted to sit with you and tell you the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So stick around, find somebody, pray with them, ask them about Jesus and let them share the good news they've been given. When you're ready, come and partake of the Great Communion Supper.